0: Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast uh, coming at you from two separate locations. Again, I'm in the Connolly studios, Uh, should start commercialising those soon, doing a lot of work in there and uh, my Footyology co-host Mark Fine down at Southern FM in Brighton. It is the 1st of June, it is officially winter and believe it or not, If you've been away for six months and you're, uh, well, you're not coming back from anywhere because everything's still locked down, but uh, we're inching closer to round two of the AFL season in June. Bizarre circumstances, but I guess we've become used to those now. As I say, a very good morning to you, Mark Fine. How are you going?
1: Look, I'm really good. Uh, Today's a big day, isn't it, because in the state of Victoria, at least, it's the opening, reopening of cafes and restaurants, albeit cautiously, maximum of 20 people per section. But it just means that another layer of normality with a number of other types of businesses being allowed to trade today makes us feel as though we're getting back to the world that we were familiar with. Not necessarily perfect world, but one that we were familiar with, and that includes footy, doesn't it?
0: Yes, it does. And uh, some more uh, news, sort of dribs and drabs here as we uh, get closer to that restart. June the 11th, Thursday evening, of course, the big restart with Collingwood Richmond in uh, round two. Some other big games on the menu. Uh, we'll talk about that and a fair bit of other stuff. We've got a good vinyl and video segment today, looking back at uh, oh, I'm Monumental year, I guess, in the history of the world for various reasons. Hmm. Uh, we've got some interesting life hack observations uh, and, of course, the rants. And uh, I've got angry again, so looking forward to delivering that. But uh, I'll tell you what I wouldn't mind delivering to me right now, finding out it's a big, fat, juicy hamburger.
1: Make it two. Make it okay. one for yourself, one for me. Right now, I'm hungry.
0: I might... I might make it three. I might have two myself. I've actually, I'm actually
1: it. peckish this morning, and that would go down an absolute treat. I don't know what time of the day. There's no shut-offs for good burgers. Look, Andrew's Hamburgers, we've been extolling their virtues for a couple of years now, and ever since we started talking about Andrew's, to today, not one thing has changed in their delivery of quality product. It just... Uh, they're 81 years young, by the way, but it is testament to their consistency that through COVID-19, through a changing world that we live in, they stick to what has made them so popular. What was the old saying? When you're on a good thing, stick to it. Might have been John Law's, but we can reprise it at 144... Well, unless
0: unless, unless you're Eddie Maguire, but yep, go on.
1: <laughs> at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, Andrew's Hamburgers, I just love the fact that I know exactly what I'm getting before I get there. And that is a quality burger from top bun. That's the rounded one to the flat one on the bottom and everything in between.
0: Couldn't agree more. I'll tell you what though, Fanny, if I'm getting my house renovated, I want to be sure I know what I'm getting with that too. Where could I do that to you?
1: Si- Similar philosophy really from the top, from the roof to the floor and below even, with basements and cellars and underground car parks all the go nowadays. You need a quality build, you need a quality reno, you need quality, and Nick Spartels of West Point Property has the form behind him, just like Andrew's hamburgers. There's not been, in his time, any callbacks, anything but praise for the work of his company. And West Point Properties brings you the very best of renovations and new builds in inner southeastern Melbourne. So that's the place to go to West Point Properties.
0: Great sponsors, and uh, we very much appreciate their support. All right, finally, let's waste no more time. Let's get straight into it. On Footyology Newsfeed. All right. Uh, Well, plenty of news to talk about. Footy news, obviously, and um, we seem to have talked or given weekly updates on the same things, and we've got a bit of that, but we actually have got some more immediate news now. And with uh, games creeping closer, only a week and a half or so away, uh, we've got some injuries to talk about, and some of them pretty serious. And the obvious thing I'm alluding to here. Is Lance Buddy Franklin, and uh, unfortunately for him, tearing a hamstring for the third time in eighteen months, and he is looking at a stint of uh, something around the ten-week mark. Unfortunately, did it at training uh, last Wednesday, and uh, absolute disaster for the Swans, who we think might find it a bit tough this season. Anyways, they go through definitely go through a. A rebuilding process um, and now they're uh, their best and most talented player looking at missing a considerable chunk of season 2020 it's a disaster for the swans fine
1: it's a disaster for the swans and for buddy Franklin not just for this season but at 33 years of age certainly his football before he was beset by these injuries over what now will be two seasons warranted his long-term contract, but how many more games realistically will Buddy Franklin play?
0: Well, you've got to ask, uh, he's certainly, I mean, how often have we seen this happen? Someone gets into their thirties and it's all cruisy and then they start getting an injury and then that becomes a couple and, and it's often those soft tissue injuries. I mean, um, more often than not with older players, it seems to be calves, but, uh, you probably prefer a, a calf than a hamstring because this sounds like another quite serious one in terms of degrees of seriousness. Yeah. Um, and um, we're not doctors, we're not doctors, afford-
1: but we've seen a lot of footy, haven't we, Rowan, To know that this might be something that he doesn't overcome.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, fingers crossed. He's been such a great player to watch, but uh, I tell you, if you, you know, if you. Well, I mean, I'm hesitating to say it even now. How many times over the years have we said, oh, the Swans are going to struggle and they come good? But, boy, if they haven't got him, it really is hard to see them playing much of a serious part in terms of finals contention. Um, So a disaster for them. Uh, And another one that only emerged uh, over the weekend, and a disaster, I think, for the club involved, is uh, North Melbourne and Mad Jack Uh, And a disaster for the game, too. I mean, uh, I think everyone really wishes Magic well as he comes back from that horrible, uh, horrible personal uh, battle that he went through with depression and, um, of course, sustained some shocking injuries to his uh, pelvis and hip. uh, When he was, um, well, found to have... uh, or forward from the Balti Bridge. Uh, And it's been a long and arduous comeback process. And, uh, of course, all this after he came off clearly a best-ever season and really established a niche as one of the better key defenders in the league in 2018. It seems like a long time ago now. But uh, he was in the gym, um, I think, Friday afternoon and tore a a ruptured a, a pectoral muscle. And they can be really, really nasty injuries too. So the estimate on him is an eight-week layoff, uh, even if it doesn't require surgery. And if it does require surgery, probably 12 weeks. So again, you're looking at a fair chunk of the season. And and again, I think that's a disaster for the club concern. I'm really glad that you
1: emphasised how good he was travelling prior to that very tragic incident that saw him not play any senior football in 2019. He was, as the season ended, it, it really only sort of developed during the season, but through the last couple of months of the season, he had become the ideal swingman second ruckman. It, there's a big question as to whether or not teams can afford to play two ruckman. I think the answer is no. And whether that second rucking position goes to just a stand-in that's going to lose every hit out or somebody that can be useful around the ground. He's a guy that was playing brilliantly at centre-half back, went forward once and won them the game as a key forward and was the perfect foil for Todd Goldstein. It was exactly what teams are looking for. So you're right, it's going to be described probably more in personal terms for Magjack, But you are spot on, Rowan. This is a big loss for North Melbourne. Big loss. Because he was a, tr- a wild card that could have been a trump card by season's end.
0: Yeah, and I think they've been a little bit vulnerable for height down in defence as well. So uh, on any level, yeah, really bad news for the Roos. Uh The other one I wanted to mention briefly too was uh, Essendon. And uh, there's a few to talk about there. Now, Orazio Fantasia, he's had his share of injury issues over the last 12 months or so, and he's got another one. He's in doubt uh, for Essendon's opening game against the Swans with a quad injury. However, um, there is some more encouraging news of the Bombers, and I reckon, now I think about it, of all the clubs um, affected by this layoff, to be honest, they probably... um, came out of it better than just about anyone in terms of being able to recuperate senior players and get them to the line, which absolutely wouldn't have been the case otherwise. And in that boat, we're talking about skipper Dyson Heppel, who now is reportedly a, a reasonable chance for that first game or second round. Cale uh, Hooker's another one. Can I just tell you um,
1: on Dyson Heppel, he'll play?
0: Okay. my you, my uh, intel. Uh, and would that intel no, confirmation from a I
1: certain? I can't divulge.
0: Okay, but uh, you might want to ring in for a quote on your house renovation. Yeah, um, yeah you could build. On, Hooker, you could build on this quote. Yes, K- Kale Hooker uh, had, overcoming a hip injury, he's now pretty likely to play. And the one I think the Bombers have been most encouraged by Joe Danaher, been um, getting out in the track and doing some really solid work, and. Uh, Looking at him returning, probably not immediately, but um, sooner than later. So uh, this layoff in terms of you know getting guys absolutely right has probably been a bit of a, a bonus to the Bombers. Of course, we don't know really how the layoff's going to have affected a lot of teams and a lot of their stars, but uh, superficially at least, looks like the Bombers might have actually prospered out of it fine.
1: Absolutely. It's a stay in proceedings that has certainly served... Those key players extremely well. I'd love Joe Danaher to play the first game because that would be uh, headline, headline, headline. Headline being it's against Sydney. Obviously, everybody knows the team that courted him. Headline mm-hmm. being nobody Franklin now and maybe for the future, Sydney really now need him. What was a sort of a whim that became a... A fruitless search now becomes almost a necessity. So it's it's very yeah. interesting the position that Danaher's now in is one of, especially if he plays this year and gets some good football under his belt, he's put himself in a really good bargaining position if he's in that yep. mood.
0: Yep, absolutely, indeed. All right, let's uh, oh, just, talk about... Just one yeah. other
1: injury quickly. Uh, Jager O'Meara yep. has oh, a... Yes. Crack, sort of on the eyebrow, just above the eyebrow. So that tells us two things. One, training's already pretty serious at Hawthorne. And two, that Jager's not likely to play the first game back.
0: Well, that's a blow for them. Um, All right. uh, Let's talk about, it's been bubbling away for quite a few weeks now, the uh, issue of the night grand final. And uh, the uh, we talked about this last week. The uh, the smart money seems to be on us having a night grand final this year because uh, well, various reasons. We won't worry about that. But um, John Ralph in the Herald Sun, and uh, I'm naming Ralph here because um, I have had a, a bit of a crack at him last week about the use of uh, revealed by the Herald Sun, and this story I don't think had one instance of that. So. And it did appear to be revealing information. So, if it's a conscious choice by you, Ralphie, well done. I, I commend you for it. But uh, you know, interesting story. And it was uh, that the AFL could delay that decision about the timing of the grand final uh, for up to eight weeks uh, because mainly logistics. Um, the entire schedule could be thrown out by um, something. Well, it could be thrown out by a lot of things, but. Here's the thinking that um, at some stage, the WA teams and the SA teams have to return to their states after being in this Gold Coast hub. Uh, The WA quarantine rules are staying very much in place. I saw a poll, actually, 90% of Western Australians support that. Um, And that, of course, requires a quarantine period of 14 days for anyone entering the state. How will that work? How can teams possibly go over there and play the West Coast or Frio? Well, the, the um, idea is this, that we have a bye for um, a couple of teams each week and that two teams would head over to Perth to play the Eagles and the Dockers. Uh, coming off a game, they would head to Perth and have the following weekend as their bye. Um, And then the weekend after that, which would uh, get around to 14 days, they would play either of those teams. The only issue there is that if they do institute a buy for everyone, it will push the end of the season beyond October 24th. That is the um, current scheduled grand final date, which also happens to be the day of the Cox Plate. And that has been cited as a major reason that the grand final might be played at night. So it wasn't to clash with the Cox Plate. So there's a few ifs and buts there. But um, anyway, the upshot is that, uh, yeah, we, we may not know when the grand final is until only a couple of months from it. Does that all make sense?
1: Makes sense, but certainly shows that there's an agenda. All right. AFL grand final clashes with Cox Plate. Mooney Valley has lights. MCG has lights. Night racing, very few people I think would be aghast at a nighttime Cox plate. Be, be great, actually. Uh, I, I'd, I'd love to see it. Certainly like to see it more than a grand final. Therefore, if people are saying, well, it has to be at night because of the Cox plate, that's a one sided argument with an agenda. As far as buy accommodating games in Western Australia, do, do we not at some point wake up from this nightmare and say to ourselves, all right, there's only so far you can go to make things happen. Imagine a team's got a bit of momentum going. They've won two or three games. Now go to WA, do nothing for 14 days, train in Unusual environs. You're not going home at night to your own place. You've been shuttled back to a hotel, then come out and play West Coast or Frio, enjoying all the luxuries of life at home, and come back to Victoria. Do you reckon, or or New South Wales, or South Australia, or Queensland? Do you reckon that team's momentum might be stopped? I do. That's just garbage. That that idea, garbage.
0: Well. I, well, I don't mind it because what's the alternative, Fanny? Me? I mean, they, those teams cannot stay in a Gold Coast hub for the duration of the season. You can't expect that.
1: So let their supporters so, tur- turn on their state premier. And any state premier that thinks that the unnatural borders of a state is where their care for Australians ends. I'm really pissed off by this state premier this state closure business, you know, why don't we take it further? Why don't we close off towns? Why isn't Kalgoorlie cut off from the world? Why isn't a street in Kalgoorlie cut off from the world? Australia's well, an many island. many
0: would argue culturally it is.
1: I've not been there. I, Australia's an island and it makes perfect sense to maintain that isolation from international exposure. But as a nation... We have got a pretty good handle on COVID-19. And to further divide and conquer this country along state lines, I've heard it well described as making two Australias. The Australia you can go from state to state in, and then the Australia that you can't. And, and let West Coast and Frio take it up with their state premier. And rather than bend this football competition inside out and upside down to suit. I really I, I I just don't believe that these state restrictions are based in any logic whatsoever and unfortunately for those two teams they've got been sent to Queensland. We'll see what whether they can make the best of that or not.
0: All right, well, it's going to be a, uh, definitely a watch this space one because I can see that being the greatest sort of logistical impediment to the season uh, ticking over smoothly. Now, um, just fi- we'll finish up with uh, Gil McLaughlin um, being interviewed on 3AW last Friday, and we have, like a lot of people, I think, been aghast at the suggestion that the shorter quarters introduced for this season... Uh, be kept as a permanent part of the game going forward. And it was good to see Gil McLaughlin effectively scotch that idea. And the quote was, It's not something we're contemplating for next year. So he was fairly blunt about it. Um, and good thing too, because uh, as we talked about last week, I mean, we have come down from. 25 minutes plus time on to what 26 years ago to 20 minutes plus time on, although they did change time on, so there's more of that. Uh, and now this year, for explainable at least circumstances, down to 16 and a half minutes. Although, look, many would argue that um, given that it doesn't look like we're now going to have to pack two or three games into a week for everyone. Uh, that excuse has sort of run dry a bit too, although um, I've, I'm a big one for having consistency of playing conditions and we've started the season under these regulations, so I think there's an argument there it needs to continue. But anyway, um, the media people trying to sort of push their agendas through, that was a bit of a blow to them. The other thing Gil McLaughlin commented on was, and it was fairly sketchy, but He did, um, uh, I guess, say cautiously that uh, there was some prospect of crowds returning to games later in the season. And, uh, boy, there'd be a logistical minefield to tread with that. But I think we'd all be pretty happy to see that, no matter how few people are allowed in, just getting some people in there at least so we're not having to pipe in uh, fake crowd noise and... um, come up with cardboard cutouts of people uh, in the uh, sitting in the stands. Um, I mean, to that end, the NRL uh, got underway and gave it a crack. What, what did you make of all that, Fanny, as a comparative exercise?
1: Yeah, they uh, the broadcast was interesting. They used crowd noise, and that was quite well handled, actually. Even though it's fake, it, I guess you can have that suspension of belief. It was better than... The what I what I describe as TAC, TAC Cup curtain raiser sound effects of no one in the stands, and no, that's no slur on the TAC Cup. I'm just talking about those games that have been played in as curtain raisers or big games, uh, games in big stadium without any crowds, and it worked pretty well. Look, we've had blow up dolls in South Korea of the of a sexual nature. That didn't go down too well with everybody. Yeah, I wonder why. We've actually got one club in Germany that for €30, Euros, you get your own life-size cardboard cutout put in the stands. So you're not enjoying the game, but a facsimile of you is.
0: Well, Collingwood's doing something similar to that, i yeah, the read. Yeah, the and,
1: and apparently... Even though they're only going to be cardboard cutouts, just on looks alone, a lot of those cardboard cutouts risk being thrown out of the ground.
0: The uh, ding ding.
1: The in America they're talking about three D imaging and everything fancy that Americans can do. I guess I've got to stop the country burning first. But somebody in New South Wales had, a, I think it was New South Wales only. I didn't see it in Queensland. Had a brilliant idea that I would absolutely be party to and it's not at the ground, it's for the fans, they turned drive-ins into... So they were showing the games live in drive-ins, and fans were dressing up, getting in their cars. They were able to order food from the food concession via their mobiles, uh, their phones. And when there was a, a try, horns blaring, lights going off, and a bit of sort of friendly car banter between the two sets of supporters, and dressing up your car was de rigueur. You have a few weeks of that. I think you'll have a lot of
0: fun with it. I like that. I like that idea. And, and what better motivation to have? Uh, kept a few drive-ins around town. I think there's how many do we have in Melbourne? There's, I think there's a couple there's, still, isn't there? Yeah,
1: there's Coburg and Frankston.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, Frankston, or there's one in Dramana. Dramana, is that the one you're yeah. Thinking of or, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah,
1: okay. Uh, I th- maybe that's the one. I and think are what, you
0: are you able are you, are you able to order footy food or is it driving food? Because I think driving... I think they're pretty I think, similar. Uh, popcorn.
1: Yeah. Oh, popcorn. Popcorn's a bit different. But I guess the funny thing is, you see, in the olden days, they used to charge per person at the drive-in and you used to sneak people in in the boot. Correct. Now it's charged per car. But I think you'll find supporters of a certain club I just made fun of a couple of minutes ago will still be putting people in the boot.
0: Yes, but uh, well, I might as well follow up that zinger with. that. Uh, but will it be their own car? <laughs> that's right.
1: The, will the car that you will? That's right. You know, you're playing Collingwood when you go to the you go to the Dunny and you come back and your mode of transport's no longer there.
0: Now, all right, it, uh, it
1: could be fun. I reckon.
0: No, no, I, I do like that idea. I, I think it's a good one. And, and, um, hey, you know right.
1: what? You know what would be great. If your team's getting yeah. if your team's getting pants, do you know how people leave early?
0: Yep. I'd love to see in the, the max, to mass.
1: Yeah, the mass exodus of cars like fifteen minutes early, and you can wind down yeah. your you wind down your window. <laughs> that that did even look and better.
0: It, and yeah, yeah, and, and the uh, supporters of the winning team could wave to them as they drive out through the window.
1: Yeah, that's right. Put nice. your, or or. The equivalent of putting the gold jacket on is putting the scarf out the window before the game's over. Ah, yes.
0: The old scarf dangling out the window on the victorious trip home. Always a good one. Correct. All right. Uh, you got any more last minute buttons there before I end this segment?
1: Um, no. Are you sure? Mm, you're tempting me. I'm really wanting to come up
0: with one no, just to be a buttonski, no, no. but. Yeah, no, don't do it. I'm not in the mood. All right, uh, there's enough news for this week. Uh, Let's talk about life, Farnie. Life Hacks. Building a better world. All right, uh, well, there's a a fair bit going on in the world. Uh, Plenty bad. Um, Boy, and and we haven't really touched on this, Farnie, but uh, the old US of A, what is happening? Over there, a whole country coming apart. You can devote a whole show to that. Uh, just, just on that, I, I've got to do my budinsky. You know, in, on the news,
1: we should mention that the USA have um, launched back into space for the first time in, what is it? a lot? You know, a decade or whatever, through yeah. Elon Musk's company. And I was driving with my son and the news reporter said, the USA has... Uh, orbited back into space and my son said about bloody time and I said, Oh is that did, did you do you follow space travel? He goes, No, isn't you isn't the entire country now in outer space? <laughs> the the way it <laughs> the way it sounded, he was I'll tell you what, I I've got to say that popular sentiment is not with America on any level. And I used to think it was just amongst students, but the rest of the world really is just shaking their heads at what that country can – new depths that they can plumb.
0: Yeah, well, uh, some incredible images um, over the weekend on TV emerging um, from the various protests and writing, and uh, I'm going to touch on this in the rant quite seriously because, um, uh, yeah, we'll get to that. No, look, it it is really disturbing. All right, I'm going to kick us off with – A bit of a tribute and uh, some sad news on Saturday, uh, the passing of Bob Hammond. Uh, Now, plenty of people I'm sure listening might not be that familiar with Bob Hammond. If you live in Adelaide or anywhere in South Australia, you absolutely would be because he's an icon of South Australian football. Uh, Why is he an icon of South Australian football? Well, um, a champion player. He played 234 games for North Adelaide, was part of three premierships. Then went on to coach Norwood to two premierships, in 1975 and 78. Uh, Did coach in the VFL. He took over as Sydney's coach in 1984 after the mid-season resignation of Ricky Quaid. He then went on to become an AFL commissioner from 2001 to 2011, and uh, was inducted into the Hall of AFL Hall of oh, Sorry, the Australian Football Hall of Fame in 2015. Um, I've seen an, enough footage of Bob Hammond playing for North Adelaide in those uh, couple of or well, two of the flags. North Adelaide won back-to-back flags in 71, 72, and was just beaten in a very famous grand final in 73 against Cornell, a game that he also played in. Terrific player. Um, and uh, a very forward-thinking coach too uh, with Norwood, um, won the Red Leagues a couple of flags, did okay in the time he coached Sydney, but also as a commissioner, um, did some great work on the AFL commission and 10 years on that commission. That is a, a really decent stint and a fair commitment. And, Look, I, I was fortunate enough to have a, a little bit to do with Bob in his time, both as Adelaide chairman. That's it. I oh, sorry, I forgot to mention that he was the inaugural chairman of Adelaide when they came into the competition in '91, and again uh, when he was working on the commission. And he was he was a lovely guy, a really really humble, um, a lot like a great mate of his actually, Barry Robb, and another North Adelaide champion. Just a, a humble, um, down to earth. Uh, you know, um, football person, you know, to his bootstraps. And, uh, yeah, I was really sad to hear about his passing. He'd been unwell for some time. But uh, RIP, Bob, uh, uh, left a fantastic football legacy. So condolences to his family and friends. All right, fine.
1: Bonds a tribute there. Just if I could ask, you said he was a great footballer. What sort of footballer was he or who could you compare him to that we might be more familiar with?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, well, he's quite a wanky, uh, I'd say a, a defender, but quite a, mo, a mobile defender. Uh, and in that way, a little bit ahead of his time. In physique, you know, probably not that dissimilar to Barry Robert. No, not necessarily similar players. But certainly, like that 73 Sanford Grand Final, I've watched a number of times. And Bob Hammond's last quarter in that, and the Roosters lost, Uh, it certainly wasn't for lack of trying from him. He's unbelievable in the last quarter of that game. Just a, yeah, skilled ball player, you know, strong when he had to be, a bit ahead of his time, I'd say, as a footballer. Brilliant. All right, you're up. Okay,
1: my first life hack is football-related as well. Sam Mitchell, thumbs up to you, mate. I think everybody knows that Sam Mitchell, who was so eagerly sought, immediately post his football career. That's why he went to WA, to West Coast, because he's got a great football brain. But he spoke very eloquently about why shorter quarters means that the game that is being played, uh, thankfully now seems to be just for the rest of this year, is not really the great game that we love. Now, people might scoff and say, look, Sam Mitchell was an endurance player. Of course, he's going to want longer quarters. But he said that he always grew up knowing that Australian rules football was played by, it was the code played by most players on the biggest ground for the longest period of time. A true test of not only skill, strength and courage, but also endurance. And to take that away from the game, he eloquently spoke last week and and said that it just takes away this great element that is endurance and that does bring your courage into question and does bring commitment and why training is so important and that in long quarters that is where true champions that he felt he was playing against great players that finished those quarters brilliantly and made it incredibly hard for him to keep up and that's how he set his standards and his mark So from his perspective, and I think it's a valid perspective, we lose something by shortening the game. And maybe Gil heard that prior to being asked those questions on 3AW. I I hope that it helped tip the balance because it seems now that the wrong will be righted at the end of the year.
0: Yeah, no, it's a a really good point. And when you mention that sort of late in quarters, the example I always think of is like Michael Voss's last five minutes in the 2002 grand final, which... Uh, in retrospect, probably should have won him a Norm Smith medal. And uh, the debate about that actually forced a change in voting on or voting procedures on the Norm Smith medal. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what was the forum Sam Mitchell said that in? Just I interest?
1: really don't know. I heard it on, uh, I think it was 1116 SEN. It was just played as a replayed piece of audio. But... Mm. Actually, you know what? It might have been on the ABC and maybe he has, I think it was on the ABC and maybe he has an affiliation there, but it, was, okay. but it was part of a, it was on the ABC and it was part of a summary of the week in sport and presented as uh, sort of Sam Mitchell's take on the restart of the game, which he's excited by, but really disappointed that they're sticking with the shorter quarters.
0: Yep, no, we're we're both very much in his corner on that one. All right, my second one. Um, Now, on social media, I frequently um, get people asking me if I can, you know, help out with a retweet or publishing something on Facebook um, in terms of charities. And, you know, 99 times out of 100, I I try and help. But um, one that popped up Uh, about a week and a half ago that I I retweeted and it really struck a chord with me Um, and uh, it's about a young girl over in Western Australia called Ruby who very tragically is no longer with us. Now Ruby was a a bright young 14 year old um, who was lost to a horrible thing called Marfan syndrome. What is that? Well it's a connective tissue disorder. Uh, Now, Ruby passed away in 2016. Her dad, Andrew, and a good mate of his, Miguel Hulme, who made contact with me on Twitter, um, have just last night completed a charity walk they've been doing around Perth called Walk for Ruby Jean. And uh, they did it last year as well and raised $7,000 and it's to raise awareness and funds for the Heart Kids organisation, which uh, is quite big and um, uh, and, uh, you don't get a lot more worthy causes than that, uh, raising funds and awareness about uh, children who shockingly have heart issues which affect their quality of life and indeed the longevity of life. So Andrew and Miguel have um, been undertaking this walk again. They weren't able to take the same route this year because of uh, Corona for various reasons. So they did a series of four shorter walks around the greater Perth region, but tallied up 200 kilometres, over 55 kilometres each day in um, pretty ordinary weather, I'm told, they also had an end-of-walk fundraising party last year, which raised another $2,000. They've been unable to do that because of the coronavirus. So this is, in essence, a, a pat on the back for them, but also an appeal to people listening. Um, they've raised about 2600 at this stage, but uh, obviously would love a fair bit more than that. So it is such a worthy cause, this. And uh, where do you do- donate to the Heart Kids Foundation? They do incredible work, hard Kids. Uh, obviously, we can't help Ruby now, but it'd be great to see some other kids with heart issues uh, and connective tissue disorder issues um, getting some uh, support and some funds for a very worthy course. So if you want to help out, uh, get on Facebook. There is a Facebook page called Walk for Ruby and that will give you all the details about where you can make a donation very, very worthy cause and I'm more than happy to lend my support to it as well. All right, fine. Rowan, just correct me
1: if I'm wrong, but Marfan syndrome, and I understand obviously in the tragic case of Ruby uh, impacted on her heart, does it not manifest itself? Maybe there are, there have been changes or, or advances in recent years, but many people who are well, some people who are unusually tall for their genetics suffer Marfan's, and I believe it, it. um They even thought Abraham Lincoln may have been a sufferer. There are certain characteristics I think of Marfan syndrome, but it is often manifests itself with unusual height. So, and well, definitely, no, you've and, got, you... and definitely shortened life expectancy.
0: You, you've got me on that one, I'm afraid. I, I wasn't I'll, aware of that. But, I believe so. um, uh, All right. Well, certainly, uh, this is certainly a cause worth getting behind. All right. What's your next one?
1: Okay. Now, I know you ranted uh, in the last few weeks quite eloquently and brilliantly about uh, a range of conspiracy theories that abound through COVID-19. I think it's been fertile ground, hasn't it? Uh, between yeah,
0: well, there was another there was another protest in Sydney at the weekend with you know people blaming Bill Gates and five G and you name it.
1: Yeah, well, you know, let's um, let's just say that every 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 smorgasbord has its nuts, but there is one element, and you have to sort of separate conspiracy theory madness, which some of it is, from actual analysis, and I'm really questioning whether or not the COVID-19 crisis, which it has been, is being used as a Trojan horse by this government to expedite a cashless society. I am shocked at how many places are not taking cash. Uh, I saw really? that. I saw, yeah, a lot of places just say we don't take cash. And Bunnings has an ad now, which runs, and we're practicing responsible social distancing, etc. And would also request that our customers, we prefer our clients, our customers use credit cards, not cash. Now, there's no evidence. I don't believe there's been any contamin, any spread of the virus through the handling of money. There's no uh, suggestion of that. There's no information that handling money is a way of catching the virus. We do know that there is going to be, through various means, I think a push towards a cashless society, and it does, for governments, allow them to capitalise on income tax and GST, which is fair enough. But let's be upfront about things. For me, cash... And its current um, poor status, its, its poor brother status, has nothing to do with COVID-19. And if the government wants to hasten a cashless society, then be upfront and honest about it and don't encourage by suggestion or by by almost osmosis businesses to what seemingly some are doing and that is turn away from accepting cash and that might become a permanent thing it's a sneaky way of doing it
0: yeah actually now you mentioned I mean I have seen things on uh, checkouts at supermarkets and whatever about yeah we prefer you using card and I get that at the moment but yeah like yeah yeah you're right actually I mean there is a whole range of things that have you know sort of look, um, explainable enough now in the current circumstances, but you just wonder, you know, will they? Yeah, will 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 COVID nineteen be a sort of a convenient hook for a lot of these changes to remain in place? Um, yeah, interesting one. All right, uh, my last one is a bit of a brickbat. This one I could not believe it last night, but uh, there it was on Twitter and we talked about the cardboard cutouts in the crowd and I didn't watch NRL over the weekend. So I saw a shot uh, allegedly from a game and um, there were various cardboard cutouts of supporters sitting in seats. And in the midst of it was uh, Richard Wilkins of uh, you know, entertainment reporting of MTV fame Uh, seated next to uh, the one and only Adolf Hitler. Now, pretty hard to think of a more tasteless joke than that. Anyway, I soon established that this hadn't happened during the game. It did, however, and this almost makes it worse uh, because someone's had time to really think about this and several checkpoints have waved it through and no one, Incredibly, has thought, mm, perhaps that's not in great taste. It was uh, on the Maddie John show on Sunday night, I think on Fox NRL, the Fox footy equivalent. And uh, there it was. At, uh, and apparently, um, the panel had a, a decent old laugh about it, too. And um, there are just some no go zones. Uh, and that I would have thought was definitely one of them. So, uh, Jesus people come on get serious that is something that causes a lot of people distress now can I point out here too fine in fact I'm interested in your take on this you'd be familiar with the downfall parodies uh, that uh, probably the the world's most popular meme over the last 10 or 15 years and uh, I had a bit of a toe-to-toe twitter stash with a couple of people who called me a hypocrite because a few years back I had seen a downfall parody, um, teeing off about downfall parodies. And uh, I observed at the time that was pretty funny. These people said that that made me a hypocrite because I was objecting to a cardboard cutout of Hitler in the crowd at a rugby league game. Uh, Do you see a difference between those two scenarios?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Why do I see a difference? Because the sort of meme or that that parody of... Hitler and they, what people who haven't seen various ones. You know, there was one of SEN where I got a good mention in it.
0: I I did see that one. Um,
1: It's it's sort of, um, yeah, it's thorny, it's thorny ground potentially, but we're talking about, in most cases, it's just a opportunity to have somebody completely because it's a scene from now Danfalls a brilliant movie and the guy who plays Hitler Bruno what
0: ah uh, yeah Bruno, Bruno Gantz, Gantz, I yeah? think yeah he died died a couple of years ago
1: outstanding performance but uh, once it's it's in the bunker and and the Nazi uh defense of Germany is flailing and they're about to be absolutely overrun by the red army and Adolf Hitler completely loses control and goes berserk. So this is an opportunity for whatever um, situation people want to do the dubbing for or or the different subtitles. It's an opportunity, really, for somebody who's just completely gone and lost his temper and gone berserk. Yeah, it is an actor playing Adolf Hitler, and if some people find that in poor taste... Well, maybe I understand that, but the what seems to be inexplicable, humorless um, image of the actual Adolf Hitler, the real Adolf Hitler uh, as a cardboard cut out at a game. what was the joke behind it? Where's the humor? And was it a cardboard, oh, was it a cardboard cut out of Richard Wilkins?
0: Yes.
1: And why is he sitting next to Adolf Hitler? Uh,
0: because, yeah, I I don't know. Because
1: of, an- of, be- of the anti-Semitic joke he once said on the morning program? Oh, I
0: didn't know that. Yeah. What was that?
1: Yeah. Some yeah, years ago, quite a few that. years ago. I actually rang up and complained about this and got hung up on by Channel 9 in Sydney or whoever he works for. Uh, you know, at McDonald's on... The Good Friday appeal. On that day, they used to open their stores up and put celebrities behind the counter, and you'd Mm. go in there, and every burger was a dollar donation, and you'd be encouraged to go to various stores because there were celebrities there, um, just working behind the counter, and they did a cross one of those puff pieces on the morning program, and Richard Wilkins was there with another one, you know, another one of their celebrities that needed propping up and they were having a bit of a laugh yeah we're going to make a lot of money etc and whoever was in the studio said to Richard are you going to be cooking the burgers today and he said no and he was standing next to the catch register and he said no I'll be playing the Jewish piano now you know I mean and and this might just people might say oh you're very sensitive about that fine no no actually it's the one form of humour that absolutely pisses me off yeah, yeah, you know, every Jew wants, every Jew loves money, every Jew's rich, every Jew is covetous, covetous. I mean, who is he, uh, Cartman? That's a parody. You know, uh, surely in this day and age, and this was ten years ago, it was still inappropriate and a just a perpetuating this, this really almost accepted when I was young, accepted truth about Jews and money, and I'm. I was well and truly sick of it by the time I heard it, and I'm more sick of it now.
0: Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, Yeah, poor form from uh, everyone at the Maddie John Show, and uh, I reckon fair bet they would have received a fairly massive kick in the ass as a result. All right, your last one.
1: Uh, Back to football, my friend, and I want to thank you because you received an inquiry from 91.3 Sports FM in Perth,
0: Oh, yes to yep. do
1: to uh, help them with a piece they were doing on the 1966 Grand final on the back of an interview with Brian Serkowski, of course West oh, Australian yep. based. Yep. and you directed them to my good self and uh, Matt, I'm not quite sure his surname uh, conducted the interview but he was well researched. I actually needed you in the interview because everything was going swimmingly. Was uh, providing background information and you know everything that you could jam into 20 minutes. When Matt said, "What really stands out about that game and makes it even more memorable is that f- the famous commentary and those quotes in the last dying right. minutes." And I know them sort of piecemeal, but Rowan Connolly, Esquire, supporter of. St Kilda not, knows them word by word. So I needed you at that point in time. You know, um, my hand won't stop shaking. I've put the lit end of a cigarette in my mouth. Though All those things I, I was
0: trying to. Oh, uh, okay, I'll give you I'll give you on that. How long have they been playing, Mike? They have been playing. If my hand will stop shaking, I can see the watch. 27 and a half minutes. Yeah, see, that's oh, this is madness. We could be back here next week. I tip this.
1: (laughs) But what I did do was, because I knew Brian Sarakowski was on prior to uh, my interview, I went and watched that very interesting piece by the BBC. And for people that don't know, the BBC (laughs) sent a a reporter or or two out and a cameraman to cover this strange game of Australian rules that brings the state of Victoria to a standstill.
0: And they did it through... I think it was... I think it was Panorama wasn't it which yeah, is a yes, really British, long yeah, BBC Panorama Current affairs
1: show. That's right Panorama from the BBC and they almost um sort of uh, well fortuitously but but with some insight into the future uh, did it through did the whole piece through the eyes of the St Kilda Football Club the lead up was done through Daryl Baldock by following Daryl Baldock and Brian Serikowski who gave the camera crew incredible access right up until they ran on the ground even in the rooms before the game but the standout now a lot of people who watch that will remember that Brian Serikowski to calm his nerves the day before the grand final went water skiing and he was on one ski and at one point he lets go, as as you do when you water ski. I've water skied a bit. You let go of the rope, and he went careering towards the bank in a rather dangerous manner. Imagine that nowadays, you know. <laughs> Where's Dusty Martin? Oh, he's water skiing. But what is less talked about is, you know, in all the interviews I do with Brian when he's sitting down, you know he's yeah. smoking. Oh, yeah, yes. He's holding a cigarette.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and also, they a great bit of it is when they interview fans queuing up for tickets. And I love old Australians. You know, mid-60s, nowadays, you know, if you're having a go at Collingwood supporters, it'd be pretty blue and could be pretty confronting, couldn't it? Yeah. Not back in the mid-60s, you know, the, an older St Kilda supporter sort of butted in whilst the uh, interviewer was interviewing somebody else and said, i tell you what, we'll pluck every feather off those magpies tomorrow, I tell you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, one, of, one of my favourites is a, a picture taken in the Essendon rooms after the 68 grand final against Carlton and they've lost. And uh, I can't remember who the player is, but they're being consoled by someone. But you can see the decorations that Cheerscott have put up in the rooms behind them. And someone has written, um, "Are we good? Are we good? Are we any ruddy?" Good? Because <laughs> people, people used to get offended by bloody, so they uh, said ruddy instead. Oh, that's it, great! It was that was very nineteen sixties. All right, um, Are you sure if it wasn't, S- <S-
1: it wasn't the it wasn't the squad? They just didn't know how to spell bloody.
0: Oh, it's possible. Well, they once uh, the SN cheer squad once famously misspelt bombers on the. Crepe paper run through so that's, why I I still, the bomb race. that's why I still yes. call
1: them the bombros.
0: Yes. Yes uh, Alright, uh, there's Life Hacks for this week I reckon it's uh, It's that moment, Fanny Where we take a step back in time Let's do it now video radio star.
1: Video
0: Vinyl radio and video star. Pressing rewind on our favourite music Movies and TV Okay, favourite segment of everyone's this, Funny. Uh You had the honour of choosing the year this week. What have you gone with, and why? I got with
1: nineteen seventy. It was the start of a decade that it, it will forever be known for its fashion, for for a an innocence and a promiscu- promiscuity that married that were sort of intertwined and lived side by side. A very interesting time to grow up for us, wasn't it?
0: It certainly was. And, uh, yeah, I guess a pretty monumental year in Australia for a number of reasons, and uh, one of them in a footy context we'll talk about. But, uh, of course, the collapse of the Westgate Bridge uh, here in Melbourne, a horrible tragedy which left, I think, 35, if not more, people dead. Um, Henry Bolte enshrined as Victorian Premier, um, but yeah, something about 1970 is sort of—it sort of feels a lot more modern than 1969 for some reason. It might just be a psychological thing, but um, as you say, the launching of a very significant decade. Let's talk first off about music, and um, plenty of choice there. Some massive acts putting out some massive albums. Uh, We had The Beatles putting out their final album, uh, Let It Be. Uh, Led Zeppelin weighed in with Led Zeppelin 3. Not a favourite of mine, to be honest, although it has got uh, Immigrant Song on it. Um, Live at Leeds by The Who. A lot of people call that the greatest live album uh, ever recorded. Uh, What have you gone with on the album front for 1975?
1: Also on the music front, I think it's the year we lost Jimmy Hendrix and Janis Joplin, maybe, but some, uh, correct, yeah, some of the Twenty Seven Club, of course. Look, I, uh, I sort of jumped in here because I know that you're a huge fan of Creedence Clearwater Revival and Cosmos. Oh, I
0: was, I am.
1: Cosmos Factory, they, they were sort of the the band that got you into music, weren't they? A bit.
0: They were. They so, were. We- uh, I got. I got. Yeah, given a single when I was five years old in in that year, no less. And, uh, yeah, I had all their albums by the time I was nine. It's a very, very popular band.
1: Well, we can share a love for Cosmo's Factory then, can't we? Uh, I'm sure you would rate it up there as one of their best albums?
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, I think a lot of people have that as their best album. Uh, Toss-up for me between that and... Pendulum, which I'm a big fan of too, which came, I think that was the Pendulum was the album after Cosmos Factory. But uh, yeah, what are you, What are your favourite tracks well, on well, Cosmos Factory?
1: For me, Credence, there's two sort of Credence Clearwater revivals. There's that CCR that gave us Fortunate Son, which is a real hard, there's a hard rocking rawness to it that is absolutely pure rock and roll. And then yep. there's a more, but again, a very earthy balladeering, which is Who'll Stop the Rain, which is just a superb song, isn't it? It, it? it is. Lyrically and lyrically and tune, sometimes songs marry in perfection. And I think that's almost one of those perfect songs, lyrically and well, they did, musically. Uh,
0: they did two great rain songs, actually, because have you ever seen The Rain? Is yeah. a, a ripper by them as well. But... um yeah, look, uh, uh, a famous album with a famous cover too, sort of a wacky yeah. shot of them in the studio with um, drummer uh, Doug Clifford on a bike. Um, look, my favourite track of that's probably the first one, Ramble, Ramble Tambble. Yes. Uh, a seven-minute-length song, but uh, that that really rocks. They could really rock uh, Credence when they put their minds to it. All Fortunate Sons a good example of that. But this is Cosmo's factory. has got up around the bend. You mentioned Who will Stop the Rain," another favourite of mine. Been using a lot of war movies and stuff too. Uh, Run through the jungle. Um, that's what, what sort of did you a good make? Of, what did you
1: make of um, looking out my back door? That's not a favourite of a lot of CCR fans.
0: I liked it when I was a kid. I mean, that was one of the songs that sort of got me into it. In fact, that was the single I was given. I think it had Look, "Looking Out My Back Door," and uh, I think "Proud Mary" was on it as well. Yep. Um, and you know, when you're a kid, you tend to go for sort of more simplistic sort of rhythms and melodies and stuff, and that I think that had an appeal. But yeah, I sort of the stuff of theirs I like the most is that real swampy swamp rock almost. And Run Through the Jungle is a, a good example of that. Yeah, great album, finally. Uh very pleased you chose that. Um, I've gone with, uh, and you did tell me you were going with that, hence I went with this other album. And this is atypical for me, um, but I really do love this album. And I remember as a kid, my sister had it and I used to play it a lot. And as an adult, uh, I find I, I, I don't play it regularly, but anytime I hear something off it, it brings back a lot of memories and I still think it stands up. I'm talking about Simon and Garfunkel and their fifth and final studio album, Bridge Over Troubled Water. And uh, – Chock full of uh, songs that a lot of people are familiar with. Obviously, the title track being the most famous, but uh, El Condor Pasa, uh Cecilia, um, Keep the Customers Satisfied, So Long, Frank Lloyd Wright, The Boxer, another very famous song and a great song, Baby Driver, The Only Living Boy in New York, um, uh, Song for the Asking, the final track. They do a cover of the Everly Brothers, Bye Bye Love. But i got to say, Fonny, Bridge Over Troubled Water, that is one of those songs which it doesn't matter what sort of mood I'm in or whatever, when I hear that and actually sit down and listen to it, it always leaves me tearing up because it's just such a beautiful, beautiful song sung beautifully by Art Garfunkel and the I love the sentiment of it. You know, it's about showing support and love for someone and uh, it's a really uplifting song um and yeah I I, like I get emotional even talking about it I mean Art Garfunkel just had such a a beautiful voice and he and Paul Simon are a great combination um Bridge Over Troubled Water is you know I, I don't like many if any ballads that would be easily number one for me because it just I find it an incredibly moving piece of music which never fails to um to move me. Um, so, anyway, Bridge Over Troubled Water, Simon and Garfunkel. Great album, I think, which even 50 years on stands the test of time. You know what hinders my
1: love of their balladeering, especially a song like What's Bridge that? Over Troubled Water? is what? waters is that they themselves um, have, an, you know, from that point on, from that last album, uh, had an animosity towards each other that has never... Been resolved. I mean, they're not really, they they they're not they're not fond of each other. It seems publicly or privately, and it's a pity. Yeah,
0: eh, I mean, they've had plenty of reunion concerts and stuff. though. it's not like they're not oh, um, speaking so, terms. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I'm not saying that they are. They hate each other, but there's mm. that 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 sentiment of bridge over troubled borders, I don't think is stretched to their personal relationship.
0: Yeah, it's a pity. well, there's um, yeah, no, no, it's a good observation. There, there's some uh connection here too with the year we're talking about because uh, they both went on and did plenty of solo stuff. Paul Simon had a, a long and very successful solo career, particularly Art Garfunkel decided to turn his hand to acting, and uh, the first thing he bobbed up in it was no mean feat either, and uh, he, I think he played a pretty good role in this. And one of the films of 1970, uh, Catch-22, Um mm. Have you seen Catch-22?
1: No, I haven't, but I've read the book. Oh, well,
0: uh, 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 yeah, well, on the other way, I haven't read the book, but I've seen the film. But was uh, pretty pretty good in that. But uh, interesting year for movies. Um, one which came to mind was uh, Five Easy Pieces. Jack Nicholson playing the, uh, what is he, Oil rig. Re- Worker or whatever, who, uh, or, or, or yeah, blue collar worker who goes back to see his dying father. I quite like that movie. Um, yeah, it wasn't a huge year for movies, to be honest. In fact, what weren't you alluding to that?
1: Yeah, I written an article written recently 50 years on will COVID 19 make 2020 the worst year for Hollywood since? Black 1970, the year known as the least productive and most concerning year in Hollywood's history. And they gave reasons why it was so poor.
0: Well, was everyone was stoned. That was the first thing I was thinking of. What, what were the reasons?
1: They spoke about the depth of uh, feeling about the Vietnam War and that it was mainly the the protests were more immediate and the music scene had sort of embraced and been embraced by the anti-war movement and that really caught on amongst young Americans and they were sort of tuning in what well, was a tuning in dropping out or whatever it was and the idea of sitting in a picture theater for 2 hours without marijuana just didn't appeal to young America apparently and it was it was a time of um naval gazing and singing, they reckon. And they were worried about what the future for movies would be. But, of course, movies, as they have the ability to do, did capture the zeitgeist of the time soon enough, and there were many great Vietnam movies thereafter. I, right, well, My, my favourite movie was a, a movie about the Korean War that would go on, made as a TV series to break all records, but it all started with the movie MASH. Uh, Robert Altman Tell movie. Us about it. Robert Altman movie there's only one actor who actually appears in both the movie and the TV series any willing to venture a guess at who that may be
0: ah oh, i yeah, I would have known this how wait is it um is it the actor who plays uh uh klinger
1: no no klinger a construct of the T V series. It was
0: Oh, is it um Hot Whip's Holahan? Nope, no, no. Moretta Swift.
1: No, she was played by uh another voluptuous blonde. Um sorry I don't have it.
0: No, I, I give I give up. Who is it? Uh
1: it was Gary Burgoff playing Radar O'Reilly.
0: Oh, Radar, yeah, right, okay.
1: But Or there, Andrew Marr. <laughs> but there was uh, the roles of Hawkeye and um, now, of course, Traffic John was the original offsider at to Hawkeye, were played by Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould. And, look, the real MASH was probably better encapsulated by the either the movie or the early TV series before the religious right got to... Do you know the whole story about the TV series MASH? That to no. stay on TV, the... the In the Reagan era, the religious right sort of started wagging their finger at a show that promoted adultery and promiscuity and multiple partners and that sort of stuff. So they replaced all the characters with homespun characters. Trapper John was replaced by BJ, who was married and never strayed. Uh, Frank Burns was replaced by Winchester. Burns was having an affair. He was married with Hot Lips. Winchester had sex with no one. Uh, Henry Blake, who was a philanderer of the highest order, was replaced by homely um, Colonel Potter. And even Klinger, who wore a dress, took off his dress and ended up the series of MASH the TV series as a regular G.I. Joe in normal uh, soldier's clothing. So they really...
0: I didn't know that. I must have switched off for it.
1: Yeah, and even Hot Lips, who was carrying on with a married man she became virtuous and went from silly to serious so all those more true-to-life exploits of doctors under pressure in a mobile surgical hospital that used to let off steam gambling and having sex is best portrayed in the movie rather than the tv series so if you want to know the true essence of mash watch the movie
0: all right. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen it, so I might revisit it. All right, I've gone with, um, this was uh, one of those movies that I really, really enjoyed when I saw it, but I've only ever seen it once and it sort of never occurred to me to watch it again. But in researching this, I sort of thought I probably should. It is uh, Little Big Man, fine, starring uh, Dustin Hoffman uh, as a um, well, a variety of characters really, but he it's a really well done the way it's set up. He is uh, interviewed as a, an old Indian man who is 121, he's being interviewed about his life. His character's name is Jack Crabb. Uh, Faye Dunaways in this film plays uh, Louise Pendrake. Um, Chief Dan George, a uh, famous Indian actor who was a much loved figure and always was the, uh, it was like the, I guess the Morgan Freeman when it came to playing Indians. He plays the character Old Lodge Skins and Martin Balsam uh, plays the uh, Huckster Allardyce T. Merriweather. So it it starts with the 121 year old Dustin Hoffman being interviewed about his life and he proceeds to astound the interviewer with um, Apparently, quite unbelievable, but uh, they happened. Uh, tales of being um, uh, living various aspects of his life in, in different guises. Uh, he was uh, captured uh, captured by the Cheyenne as a young boy, and raised by them. Um, he becomes at, at one point a gunslinger. He is an associate of Wild Bill Hickok. Uh, he's a scout for General Custer, um, the sole white survivor of the Battle of Little Bighorn. Um, so it, it's sort of a, a retrospective on American history involving the Indians told very sympathetically from an Indian point of view, and this character sort of has various phases of his life rubbing shoulders with these huge historical events. And um, it's it's a comedy, you know, There's there's... Uh, very very funny stuff in it, but there are also moments of great pathos too and and tragedy. You know, like he's he's living with Indians and he's there when the the village gets wiped out by the uh, by the U.S. troops. Um, he has an ongoing thing with Custer. He comes a, across Custer in several different stages and swears to avenge. Um, Custer's troops murdering of his family. Um, but it's it's a lovely movie and a great, great uh, acting performance from Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, it occurs to me actually. He is in a lot of movies that I really like, Dustin Hoffman. But uh, almost my favourite moment, Finey. Uh, have you seen this film? No, it this, sounds interesting. Oh, okay. Um, almost my favourite moment. So he comes back to the Cheyenne um, people who brought him up. And Chief uh, Dan George's character, old Wodskins, is still alive but uh, decides his time has come. And uh, so he, I love the way he speaks to um, old Wodskins and he says, it's a good day to die. So he marches off to the Indian burial Grounds with Dustin Hoffman, um, who helps him sort of make his peace with the gods and lie down and offer himself to them uh, because he's had a good life and, and uh, he sort of says his farewells and lays down to die. And Dustin Hoffman stands there watching him and uh, all of a sudden these storm clouds start gathering and it starts spitting rain, and the raindrops keep falling on Old Lord Skin's face, and preventing him from lapsing into unconsciousness and dying. And after about five minutes, by which time he's getting soaked, he lifts his head up and he goes, "Am I still in this world?" And um, and Dustin often says, "Yes." And he said, <laughs> he gets up and he said, "Oh well, uh, sometimes the magic works, and sometimes it doesn't." And uh, he gets up and they go off and, to have a cup of tea and he decides to die another day. Um, but, yeah, oh, it's a, a lovely movie, Little Big Man, and uh, well worth watching. And uh, I watched it a long, long time ago, but I think I will watch it again soon. All right, uh, let's get to TV finding. Uh, what do we have on a TV front in 1970? We had uh, the Mary Tyler Moore Show, the Partridge Family, the Odd Couple, McLeod. Uh, what have you
1: gone with? And don't sell the Mary Tyler Moore show short. That was a brilliant show that uh, had spin offs. The um, Was it the Lou, you know, the character played by Ed Asner? He had his own show. There was the Cloris Leachman oh, Lou Grant. Lou Grant show. Lou Grant. Well, yep. Yeah. There was the Cloris Leachman show, her nutty neighbor, and brilliant acting by Ted Knight and a young. Who's the guy who played um, the captain on Meryl Steubing on the Love Boat? He also was on that show. But my went for something that we've talked about a few weeks ago because of a tragic passing, but 1970s marked the beginning of the goodies on TV in Uh, the United Kingdom. Of course, uh, sadly, COVID 19 claimed the life of Tim Brooke Taylor, one of. The three goodies, Graham Garden, Bill Oddy, and Tim Brooke Taylor, famously used to get around on their bicycle built for three. Their adventures were hyper unrealistic but fun, uh, set in the real world, but a strange world where they uh, did anything for Queen and Country, often. Bringing Tim Brooke Taylor to tears when God Save the Queen was being played could convince him to do anything, and off they would go on various missions to keep England sane and whole. They would tackle things like the um, uh, the. They went up to Scotland to battle a spider that was more bagpipes than spider. In their search of the Loch Ness monster, they uh, took on a giant kitten. They took on they played cricket at Lord's. They basically uh, had a bit of a fun look at, and it was a bit childish, but a fun look at everyday life through the eyes of the goodies. And I reckon uh, you,
0: a... you forgot, you forgot the controversial one breeding Rolf Harris. As yes, in Rolf, captivity. that's right. Wasn't yes. controversial at the time. Uh, and uh, the other one, uh, Ecky, Thump, Ecky Thump, the, the uh, Northern the martial arts, martial arts.
1: <laughs> of hitting somebody with a black pudding. But, I reckon if you showed it to kids nowadays, they'd look at you blankly and think it was absolute crap, confirming how good it really was.
0: Yeah, yeah no, I did love the goodies. It was amazing when Tim brooke Taylor died recently, just the outpouring from yeah. so many people of our vintage. And it, it actually made me think, like, I knew it was popular, but geez, I didn't know it was that popular. It was, it was on at a
1: great time, wasn't it? It was on, yeah, massively
0: popular in Australia, particularly. Do you know what time
1: it was on? It was on when TV stations here, like Channel O, just started an earlier news service. So rather than get involved with the news or some at the at the time impossibly adult game show, kids would turn to Channel Two around five thirty or six and watch the goodies, much to their parents' absolute chagrin. Get this rubbish off.
0: Yeah. And it was also um, replayed a lot yeah. over the years, long, long after it uh, it ceased being filmed. All right. No, I love the goodies. Good, good call. All right. My choice uh, certainly won't go down the annals of great TV series, but it's one of those ones. When I was a kid, you know how when you're a, a little kid, you get. You Crush. I've got to say, my interest in the, um, the other gender was aroused quite early in my life. And I used to have serial crushes on various uh, female TV identities. The first one was Rosemary Margan. Remember Rosemary Margan used to do the Weather ads. Channel 9 personality and did ads. Yeah, but she did the weather. And I used to run up and kiss the television when she came on to do the weather, apparently, when I was about three three years old. Um, the, the next uh, object of my affections was uh, Elizabeth Montgomery in Bewitched. Um, uh, I, it seemed to be a thing about sort of mother-type figures almost, but uh, I, I loved her. And then this one. And the show I'm talking about is Nanny Nanny, and the Professor. Oh, my God. And, uh, yes, and the actress was Juliet Mills, uh, English actress, who's actually a bit of a dead ringer for Elizabeth Montgomery, now I think about it. And she played the kind-hearted but slightly magical nanny who emerges from nowhere to care for an American family. Uh, consisting of Richard Long, who played Professor Harold Everest, a widower, of course. Weren't there a lot of widowers around in TV sitcoms? Um, and his three children, two young boys, Hal and Butch, and a young girl, Prudence, played by uh, Kim Richards, who would go on and become uh, even more well-known in the show Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, which... Is still going. I think I don't know if she's still on it, but uh, yeah, it was it was sort of playing off the Mary Poppins genre of uh, magical mystery nannies with hearts of gold, and it was yeah, it was pretty syrupy and sweet. But I loved Juliet Mills, and she used to um, you know foresee things happening when she'd always know when someone was going to knock on the door or the phone would ring, and she was always getting the kids and the professor out of. Um, various uh, uh, situations that involve themselves in, uh, whilst always being able to rustle up a beautiful home-cooked meal for them all. Um, She was a beauty, Juliet Mills. And, uh, yeah, I used to watch Nanny and Professor religiously in those years. Uh, I was on a bit later here, 71, 72, being, you know, when I was about five or six years old. I don't – I haven't forgotten this, though, Finey. I can't remember – how old I was when I saw it. But whilst she made Nanny and the Professor or just immediately after it finished, uh, Juliet Mills appeared in a film called Avanti with Jack Lemmon, um, about two people who go back to, uh, go, go to Italy to repatriate the bodies of their dead relatives. Uh, and there's a scene where Jack Lennon and um, Juliet Mills are skinny dipping. And uh, there's Juliet Mills sort of sitting there quite happily, full frontal nudity, waving to these people on a boat. And I'm thinking, my God, that's the nanny, naked. And... Um, Anyway, Nanny and the Professor ran from 70 to the end of 71, three seasons and 54 episodes.
1: Rowan, when you watched the movie Avanti and Juliet Mills appeared full frontal naked, did you do a Rosemary Margin and go up and kiss the TV?
0: Uh, I didn't. Uh, No, I didn't. I can't remember what I did, but I was still young enough to not have done what people are suspecting of.
1: (laughs) That show, The Nanny and the Professor, I always used to get entangled with... There were three shows. I could never tell them apart. They were The Ghost and Mrs Muir, The Nanny and the Professor, and was it Family Affair, where Brian Keith was a widower?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. And Sebastian
1: Sebastian Cabo was the man Friday.
0: What about uh, my three sons, Fred McMurray? He was a widower. Yes, that's right. So many men in that era were losing their wives. What was going on? Um, they, weren't really, right, we're they, were, get...
1: they weren't really widowers. Their wives were nicked off and found better prospects. Did you ever watch The Hathaways? No. That was an odd program. That was a couple that couldn't have children, so they adopted three young chimpanzees and basically <laughs> treated them like children.
0: Okay. Um, all right, your footy memory.
1: Okay, 1970, and obviously a year of a great grand final, but I know you have it's a game close to your heart and you'll be best placed to relive it for us. One of the greatest players ever to pull on a boot was a long-armed, hunched-over rover for South Melbourne, loved by fans, opponents, teammates, of course, and umpires, and given the permanent prefix triple Brownlow medalist, Bobby Skilton. He's... A chip. Unfortunately, he's... um. Timing, like so many, like like a handful of footballers, their brilliance didn't happen at a time when their club was particularly, pros- you know, prosperous as a football team. And like Robbie Flower, and at least they played finals. Trevor Barker never played a single final. Um, and there have been quite a few great players who've barely played finals football. For Bobby Skilton he only played one final it was the first semi-final in 1970 south melbourne his beloved club he you know he started in 59 and uh, by 1970 it seemed as though there was a little chance of south melbourne playing in a final they just weren't up to it no year indicated really that they were about to but 1970 the first year of 22 home and away games uh, they hadn't played finals since the the grand final of 45, the bloodbath. But they just started brilliantly. They won the first five games of the year. And then they kept winning games that you wouldn't expect them to win. They had a thumping win at the Lakeside Oval over Collingwood. Uh, the common theme was brilliance by Peter Bedford. He had uh, something like 27 possessions that day, kicked four goals Keith Baskin kicked five. Then they had a, a one point scrape against Carlton at the Lakeside Oval. Another great win. But they would also manage some really good wins away from home and just kept bobbing along. And, you, you know, they were surrounded by powerhouses Collingwood, Carlton, St Kilda, very strong at that time. Richmond had staked a claim. Geelong were in the four for much of the year. And it wasn't till late in the season when they thrashed your Dons who were going through a particularly bad season that they booked themselves a spot in the finals. But they did so with two weeks to go. They came out against St Kilda and unsurprisingly, big game nerves against a season finals outfit by then. Saw them trail by five goals at quarter time. South Melbourne turned it around in the second quarter. They looked great. And they led at half-time. But they couldn't sustain it and some older heads prevailed for St Kilda. They got good service out of the likes of Alan Davis and Barry Lawrence and the ship was steered straight and they won by over 50 points. But for Bobby Skilton in his 218th game, he did step out on the MCG in front of almost 100,000 people on a beautiful, beautiful um, early... Early spring day, and it was the least that the great champ deserved. So, you know, he coached Melbourne with no success either. So, his one day of finals well, it wasn't glory, they lost, but his one deserved day of finals football happened in 1970.
0: Yep, no, well, well, uh, encapsulated, uh, you know, just on when he coached Melbourne, they were so close to making the finals in 1976. They beat Collingwood at Collingwood and that fulfilled that end of the bargain. All they needed was Carlton, who were on top of the ladder, to beat Footscray, who weren't a contender at Carlton, and Melbourne would have made the finals. But Footscray sneaked a draw with Carlton and that denied Melbourne a final spot under the coaching of Bob Skilton. Cruel luck. All right, uh, my one, you mentioned it. And look, I'm not going to take a long time over this because we all know about the 1970 grand final. Um, Actually, uh, Jake Nile wrote a a decent piece recently about why it is the most important grand final in history. And I I concur about that. I think there's a number of reasons. Firstly, the record crowd ever assembled at a uh, sporting event In Australia, one hundred and twenty-one thousand six hundred and ninety-six people crammed into the MCG for that Uh, game—a record comeback in a grand final—and amazingly, in an in an era where to come back from those sort of margins was almost unheard of, Carlton came from forty-four points down at halftime, famously retrieving a seven goals plus deficit to win the premiership. Amazing stuff. It contained, it's a game which contains the most famous mark in football history taken by Alex Jezelenko over Graham Jerker jenkin It featured the most famous uh, one-hit wonder, if you like, grand final performance, that of reserves player Ted Hopkins who came off the bench at halftime and kicked four goals to play a huge part in getting up and uh, pinching that premiership and uh you know it's a game with, it's a, it's a game of a real fast flowing game plenty of scores obviously plenty of drama obviously but a great game to watch just purely for the football quality um none the least and you I know you're a big fan of the 67 grand final final and in, in a way a game ahead of its time but this uh, uh, the third quarter of this game I reckon is right up there with it and uh, Jeez, talk about fast scoring. So Carlton come out for the third quarter, 44 points down. The Blues kicked seven goals in 12 minutes in the third quarter to almost hit the front within half of that third quarter. And that, in a way, it makes the win even more amazing because Collingwood actually steadied, got back to a lead of three goals um, early in the last quarter and then Carlton came again. And managed to overhaul the uh, deficit. But seven goals in 12 minutes in that third quarter burst. Just amazing to watch if you haven't seen it. It is on YouTube. There's several versions of it. And uh, the ifs and buts of Collingwood obviously were enormous and uh, kicking themselves. They'd beaten Carlton three times during the year, including the second semi semi-final. And talk about missed opportunities. You're 44 points up. But I was thinking as I was looking at the quarter by quarter scores flying at quarter time, well, you wouldn't have, they were so far in front, you'd be thinking, oh, it's not going to cost us. But it should have been all over at quarter time. The scores at quarter time were three behinds Carlton, Collingwood, four goals, eight, 32. So they had a five goal lead up by quarter time, but having kicked four, eight, it should have been absolutely all over at quarter time and certainly at half time as well, when it was 44 points. All right, uh, the most famous grand final in football history. No question about that. that can is I ask you one question about it? Of course you can, because what would be a segment without you butting in? Go on.
1: Well, that's not true. That's not butting in. I'm just asking you a question about the grand final. All right,
0: no, ask me, ask me a question. Go on.
1: Did Ted Hopkins water ski the day before the game?
0: <laughs> no, I know, he's a fan of water skiing. He, he was an ago. Australian, was
1: a... the Australian champion.
0: Correct. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, he's had an interesting life, Ted, because uh, he famously, well, he retired not long after the grand final, uh, after 71, I think. I he played another handful of games and uh, became a poet for a while. And uh, I tried to interview him early in my journalistic career about the 70 grand final. And he only wanted to talk about his poetry. didn't want to talk about the footy. And then, of course, he ended up uh, in football statistics Uh Involved with Champion Data for a long time, and then set up his own statistics company. And he um, hasn't been well in recent years. Ted, he had a, a stroke uh, quite recently. We interviewed him on Margaret Footy Show a couple of years ago, but uh,
1: Lost, uh, I think was, he's was pretty hard of hearing. I, I used to catch up with him quite a lot at Peran Market, and um, yeah, he was pretty pretty mutton. Jeff. He also worked for a couple of years as a ranger on Mount Buller.
0: Yeah, okay. Oh, he certainly had a a varied existence, Ted, no doubt about that. All right, that is it. That is vinyl and video for this week, 1970 revisited. How about we do some serious ranting, Farnie?
1: I'm looking forward to yours and uh, mine is very different, so let's do it.
0: On Footyology, The rant 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 All right, Finey, Uh, well, we we did talk about what's been going on in the US over the last few days, pretty serious stuff, um, but uh, pretty serious um, side impact as well, which uh, has got me a bit fired up, and I've prepared a little rant about it.
1: Well, I'm always interested in uh, a fired-up Rowan Connolly and what he has to say.
0: Three, two, let's have it. I'm pissed off with the American media, Finey. I mean, how dare they attempt to cover the wide-scale riots going on in the US at the moment and not expect to cop a rubber bullet to the torso, a blow from a baton or a shot of pepper spray to the face. I've spent most of the last 24 hours keeping an eye on the explosive situation via my Twitter feed and it's staggering just how many of the press corps have managed to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Surely it's just a series of pure coincidences that yesterday alone at least a dozen people Obviously, working as journalists, carrying clear means of identification, were all somehow dealt with in brutal fashion by armed police and National Guardsmen, apparently there to protect the public and keep the peace. It has to be just bad luck, doesn't it? I mean, a whole score of foreign correspondents over the past couple of centuries have managed to cover full-scale wars where thousands have been killed and managed to escape unharmed. That would seem to indicate that for centuries, even the sworn savage enemies of nations at war have known enough not to directly target the media representatives of those enemies because they acknowledged they weren't armed, presented no threat, and were simply trying to report news as it happened. But wouldn't you know it, there's a domestic upheaval local journalists are attempting to update the public about, and one after another, they're somehow finding themselves on the wrong end of a law. Because, you know, standing out of the way of protesters and police presenting a piece to camera clearly poses a clear threat to public safety. And fair go. It's pretty hard to tell the difference between someone throwing rocks at a police car or looting a store from someone holding a microphone talking to someone else holding a camera while another crew member holds a microphone. The American media should have known better than to test their luck. They could have at least consulted the black communities on that score. I mean, they've had shocking luck with American police for a long time now. Just ask George Floyd. Oh, that's right. We can't because he's dead. But, you know, forge a check in a convenience store. And what do you expect to happen other than to have someone subdue you and then throw you on the ground anyway and put their knee on your neck so you can't breathe until you die? And I'm pissed off with all these people claiming that the US president has had any part to play in all this unrest, Blimey. How ridiculous. As if there's any connection between Donald Trump's long-established history of racism and dog whistling and overzealous authorities feeling more empowered to take out their prejudice on victims with impunity. And as if his obsession with so-called fake news, accusing news hosts of murder and constant references to the media as an enemy of the people over the past four years would in any way have led to them being treated like criminals now by law enforcement, not to mention Trump's supporter base. Look, the media cause all this by questioning what's going on in the White House. If only they knew their place like they do in spots like, you know, Russia. They really know how to keep things under control, particularly come election time. You know what, Finey? I reckon it'd be a good idea to have the Russians keep an eye on the upcoming US elections in November just to make sure everything goes smoothly. I don't know why no one's thought of that before. Oh, actually, hang on. That seems to ring a bit of a bell
1: sarcasm at its purest speaking to a sad truth that is america today unfortunately well done
0: uh yeah no thank you and uh quite seriously what is going on uh to the media there is an absolute disgrace you have to see some of the vision of this stuff to actually believe it it's quite it's just head scratching all right your turn are you ready to go
1: i am indeed
0: All right, three, two, one, rant.
1: No rant today, Rowan, not even close, but a tribute, a tribute to an amazing woman who has defied all probabilities to celebrate her 90th birthday on Friday. I speak of my mother, who was born in Lublin, Poland in 1930 on May the 29th, and was Sad timing unfortunately because before long uh, she would be separated from her father who spent uh, every penny that the family had to put her and her mother in the attic of a neighbour and that Polish family took a great risk as my mother lived out the war or at least most of the war uh, as Anne Frank did silently in the attic of a righteous Gentile. Uh, she was able to survive the war with her mother, they came to Australia, met my father and they enjoyed a, a wonderful marriage and when my father passed away almost a decade ago, or eight years ago thereabouts, uh, we worried for mum because she was determined to keep living on, uh, where they lived on her own and she's made a damn good fist of it. and even through COVID-19, which has been particularly difficult on old people. My mother plays bridge four times a week. She still drives. She's To describe her as um, lucid would be denying the fact. She's as clued in, sharp, and ready for a stoush verbally as she's been all her life. Very feisty woman, a great bridge player, still very competitive, but that was taken away from her in recent months, and... She has managed to negotiate those difficult times by staying in contact via the phone, not interested in computers, and coming out on her balcony, sort of Romeo and Juliet-like, to see her children and grandchildren at various times at a distance. And, you know, it was just great on Friday to sit down with my two sisters and other a couple of other members of the family, still observing the rules that were in place for limited number of people that could be over there. A couple of grandchildren came and, you know, my mum was really moved and letters were read out. But what really touched her was uh, people reaching out on my two sisters' Facebook accounts and, and friends of my sisters just paying great tribute to Lucy and the woman she is. And they know her as always goes out of the house, beautifully dressed, hair done perfectly, won't leave the home like me or you, Rowan, in tracksuit pants and half done up, a real, real elegant lady with plenty of years ahead of her. So it's not around. It's a tribute to my beautiful mum, Lucy.
0: Very, very well spoken. That's uh, very heartfelt, I can tell. And uh, a very, very happy birthday to you, Mrs. Fine. No mean feat at all to get to 90 years of age. So I
1: wrote a card and, you know, it was a, we all wrote cards and it was generally something that she'd really liked, you know, from Natalie and the kids, my kids, how much we love her, etc. but the last sentence made absolutely no sense to her and would only make didn't even make sense to my sisters. And you know what the last sentence on the card was? No, all the best as you head into the nervous 90s. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, so no one's a cricket fan? All
1: right. <laughs> no, certainly not.
0: Do, do you know, I've got to say, do you know how many uh, birthday cards of my family members I have used a cricket reference, either about the half century and raising the bat or something like that? Um, yeah, we, we've got to come up with some new material. Uh, all right, we're done finally. Another epic length show. <laughs> we know how to talk. Um, we do, All friend. right, uh, Speaking about tributes, uh, I think we've got a couple of very uh, helpful sponsors who deserve a quick tribute. We
1: do indeed. Big thank you to Andrew's Hamburgers, 81 years young, so only nine years younger than my mum. They've both had great innings and still going strong, the pair of them. At 144 Bridport Street, Andrew's Hamburgers for the best burgers. And you know what? Now is the right time to capitalise on good property, And a great position deserves a great property. And who better to turn to than West Point Properties? Nick Spartels, he's done it for Dyson Heppel, Scott Pendlebury and Mike Shee, and he can do it for you guys as well. Thanks to our great sponsors. And you always thank.
0: Who else, Rowan? Our wonderful audience. Uh, We've uh, come a long way together and we appreciate your continued support of this podcast. Hopefully we'll keep going for many years yet together as one, as the footy season creeps ever closer. Thanks to your company once again. Uh, We'll see you next week.